We're in Psalm 103 today. Psalm 103. Psalm 103 is a hymn of thanksgiving to God. And for those of you that might be new to Christ, might be just seeking, Psalms is right in the middle of your Bible. So you open up your Bible right down the middle, you're going to find the book of Psalms and you're looking at Psalm 103. Psalm 103 is medicine for the critical spirit. Medicine for the critical spirit of an ungrateful heart. You might be here this morning and your default, you woke up and you're rather grumpy or you're in a bad mood or you're going through just an objectively hard season in life. Psalm 103 is precisely what you need. It's what I need this morning. It's what I need every morning. Psalm 103 would be a great psalm to begin every day. Psalm 103 commissions creation to sing. It commands creation to sing. When was the last time that you were so enjoying the Lord that you stood up and summoned the heavens? Bless the Lord. I mean, that's what the psalmist does here. You read Psalm 103, verses 20 to 22, and you hear a symphonic orchestra burst to life from all of creation. Look with me at verse one. Bless Yahweh, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name, all that's within me. God demands all of me. Do you notice that here, praise isn't spontaneous experience. The psalmist isn't waiting to feel like he wants to bless the Lord. He orders his soul. He commands his soul. He charges his soul to worship before the feelings are there. Get up, get going, bless the Lord, oh my soul. It's what our soul always needs to hear. I, I, I want to ask you this morning, are you awake? Are we awake? Are we ready to bless the Lord with our very soul? Are we ready to command our soul to bless the Lord? You see, worship is not mindless. It's not unintellectual. Worship is never passive. It's not something that happens to us. So we need to shed the apathy and we need, we need to cut out the gloom. And as we hear in verse two, bless Yahweh, oh my soul. God never wastes any ink. Every word he means it. It's inspired. It's breathed out by God. And our soul, therefore, we learn, requires repetition. It's not good enough to just say it once. We need to hear it again and again and again. We need to preach to ourselves. Preach to yourself. Charge your soul. But here's the question. How? It's not enough for me to just command my soul. Bless Yahweh. Bless God. Bless the Lord. How? How do I coax my soul? How do I stimulate my soul? How do I spur my soul to bless the Lord? Well, we have the answer for us in verse two. Forget not all his benefits. Don't stop forgetting. No, that's not right. Stop forgetting. Stop forgetting all his benefits. Don't stop remembering all his dealings with you. You see, our soul suffers spiritual dementia. 
Its theological memory is constantly leaking. It's perpetually draining, which means that we need to constantly be doing what? Filling it up. We need to constantly be inundating it, flooding it with all the benefits of who God is for us in Christ Jesus. We must fill it morning, noon, and night. We have to bombard our soul with God's benefits. Mind your emotions, force them, teach them, guide them, disciple your feelings to follow truth. You see, God remedies the soul with his choicest rewards here in this Psalm, verse three. Look at verses three to five and you'll notice a repeated refrain. You'll notice a certain pronoun, who, 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 who. Meditate on the benefits of him, who God is. We need to be taken to the ultimate whoville. It's the whoville of, of who Christ is. Don't reinvent him. Don't make a God in your own image and in your own imaginings. Bless his holy name. He is who he is. Learn who he is. He says who he is and bless the God who is. Yahweh is uniquely God. There is no other. We do not worship the Jehovah of Kingdom Hall or the Elohim of Utah or the Allah of Mecca. God is who God is. God says who God says he is. God is who God says he is. Anything our deceptive hearts think or feel about God is an untrustworthy invention of our own imagination. We are not to be trusted with who God is. We are to open up God's word and say, God, you tell me through your word who you are and I will bless you. You see, to bless Yahweh, you and I are obligated to know Yahweh as Yahweh has revealed himself through his word. Forget not all his benefits. Now notice this, notice it's his benefits. Don't fake your own. Don't make up your own benefits from God. One scholar said, David selects a few of the choicest pearls from the casket of divine love, threads them on the string of memory and hangs them about the neck of gratitude. What are his benefits? First, he forgives all your iniquity. Now, your refers to one individual. Who is it? Who is it that the psalmist is commanding? Who is David preaching to? Oh, my soul. It's almost like he's standing in a mirror. Oh, my soul. Forget not that God forgives all your iniquity. This is not a feel-good poem. And yet, if you believe it, it will make you feel good. This is not fluff. This is reality written by a man to his own rescued soul. Friend, to preach to your soul, God forgives all your iniquity. You must first turn from sin to Christ. This is a psalm for the Christian This is a psalm for the person who realizes that there's more grace in God than sin in me. 
That though I am a great sinner, Christ is an even greater savior. That though I am excellent at sinning, he is better at saving. And we turn from our sins to him who says, I will never cast you out if you come to me. There it is. So if you've done that, if you're doing that, if that's your life, if that's your testimony, God forgives all your iniquity. I love that hymn. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Be to me the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Has God shown you that your sin is sinful beyond measure? Has he shown you the sinfulness of your sin? Oh, then praise him. Praise him because he forgives all that iniquity, all that guilt, all that wickedness forgiven, not some, all, not past, forever, not partial, completely. Constant, indulgent forgiveness of all sin must be the leading vanguard of all the other benefits from God. Then what? Verse three, he heals all your diseases. You see, man wasn't sick with sin. Man never got any kind of sickness before sin, but our plight is far worse than just sickness and our body, the effects of sin and our body. God can heal. God does heal and God will heal all of us completely in the resurrection. That is the bright hope of the gospel set before us, but That future is only for those who say right now, oh, my soul, my soul, God heals all your soulish forgiven diseases. Martin Lloyd-Jones was the next royal physician in the United Kingdom. He would have been Queen Elizabeth's doctor given a little time. But he left medicine when he saw that it was sin making virtually all his patients sick. Most of his patients led lifestyles of sin that contributed to their health issues. They lived selfishly or anxiously or greedy, stressed out. Alcohol was being guzzled too much drugs being consumed, sex being promiscuous. And so he said to himself, I'm going to heal more by preaching the free grace of God in Christ Jesus. I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm going to preach God's word and I'm going to do more good in my situation than I am currently being at the top of my career in the medical field. Now that's not to belittle those of you in the medical profession. This was just simply where God drove him. Verse four, oh, my soul, bless Yahweh who redeems your life from the pit. Our, our life was enslaved 
underground. We were dead. We weren't struggling when Christ died for us. We were dead, hostile, enemies of God, haters of God. We were Joseph down in the waterless well. There was no hope for us. We were gonna be murdered by our brothers. The pit here is a dungeon of decay. It's a grave of certain death. And Yahweh constantly pulls us up from the swamp of despond, always relating to us, not as a reluctant savior who flicks out little bits of salvation to us as if he's disgusted with us. No, as our dearest friend and family member, as our loyalist loved one, he, he, he's constantly grouping us up out of the pits in which we find ourselves. In other words, the repentant, those who are redeemed by the blood of Christ, they are invincible until God takes us home. Nothing can touch you until God takes you home. So, verse four, soul, bless him who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Soul, he treats you like a king. He removes crowns of love only to fit on your head diadems of mercy. It is grace upon grace, grace in place of grace, grace instead of grace, grace in exchange for grace until your stepping grace from grace by faith to faith reaches glory. And then it's grace for an eternity beyond that. He, stead, he is steadfast love. He is faithful mercy and his mercies are new every morning. He crowns us with him fresh each day like we are little princes and princesses. And to crown is really this idea of surround as a crown surrounds the, the brow of, of your head. To crown is surround. It's God closing in on us. And the same language is used in 1 Samuel 23, where Saul and his men were closing in on David to capture him. It's that David who writes this psalm. And so David says, God ambushes me only to smother me with love and mercy. God persecutes me with love and mercy. Surely goodness and mercy shall, shall hunt me down all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's it. You feel right now like, like the hounds of heaven are chasing you down. You feel like God's after you. You feel like you're being persecuted by God. And if we could just see his smiling face, we would know that it's only love and mercy that's hunting us down. The Christian gets nothing but love and mercy from God. We are God's children, Romans 8. And if God's children, then heirs of God, fellow heirs with the king, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified, not under him, not beside him, not behind him, with him. This is just extraordinary. It's, it's almost too good to be true. We would think it's too good to be true if it were not indeed true. Verse five, oh, my soul, 
Yahweh satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. He drowns in goodness. Happy souls sing happy songs. And this is a happy song by a happy soul. Have you ever seen uh, a, a new baby, uh, a nursing baby? They literally get drunk with their mother's milk. I mean, they just like, they're incapacitated and they're, they're smiling and they're just hammered with milk. That's the idea here. He satisfies you with his goodness. Stop drinking the world's spoiled milk. We are lactose intolerant to this world. Isaiah 40 verse 26 says, They who wait for Yahweh shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God's people refresh daily with the promises of God in the gospel are forever young. Yahweh our God is never bored of reviving us. He never tires of revival. You might be here today and you're thinking, man, I've been walking with the Lord so long. It's embarrassing that I found myself in this position again. And he goes, you're the only one that's getting bored of being revived. I love reviving. Just ask me. I'll do it. He never tires of it. Reminds me of that song, I will glory in my Redeemer whose priceless blood has ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that judgment tree. I will glory in my Redeemer. My life he bought, my love he owns. I have no longings for another. I'm satisfied in him alone. See, that's, that's, the, that's the pairing there. It sounds like a bold claim. I have no longings for another. Oh, we've got all sorts of longings. But when those longings are met by another, we realize dissatisfied. I'm satisfied in him alone. I will glory in my redeemer who carries me on Ingle's wings. He crowns my life with loving kindness. His triumph song I'll ever sing. I'm curious, does guilt paralyze you? Verses six to seven, Yahweh works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Now, Bible trivia time. How were Moses and Israel, how are they doing in Egypt? It's a great question. Was Moses a minister or a murderer? Were oppressed Hebrews innocent victims or guilty complaining rebels? Yahweh worked justice for them, not because of them. 
Had he not shown them his ways, his actions, his mercy, his love, Moses and Israel would have died in their sin, just like the Egyptians. But Yahweh is faithful even when we are unfaithful. And so he says to the nation of Israel, Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, Yahweh, your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on earth. It was not because you were greater than any other people that Yahweh set his love on you and chose you for you were the least of all peoples, but it is because Yahweh loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Now, let me ask you a question. If God loved Israel, by oath to sinful Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Will he not honor his vow to rescue the bride of his sinless son? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. I mean, if he made an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to save an entire nation, (laughs) will he not make good on his promise? to the son of his love, to redeem his bride, us, the church, will he ever stop loving you? Impossible. Verse eight, Yahweh is merciful and gracious. Now, is David just imagining? Is he thinking up, this is how I want God to be. This is how I wish God were. No, David is meditating. David is meditating on the Torah. David is meditating on the law, on the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. He's meditating specifically on Exodus 33 and 34, where Yahweh said to Moses, and I quote, you have found favor, that is grace, in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. Very dangerous thing to request. And Yahweh said, I will make all my goodness. That's the same goodness that we just heard in Psalm. He satisfies you with goodness. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. That's the same holy name that we are commanded to bless in Psalm 103. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy Yahweh descended and stood with Moses and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And who will by no means clear the guilty. And he did not. He took all the guilty ones whom he loved and he put them in the son he loves and he executed the guilty in Christ. And Moses fell down quickly and he worshiped. Bless Yahweh. Oh, my soul, how merciful, how gracious Yahweh, the self-sustaining, self-existing source of everything is not needy like the false gods 
of the nations. His heart is magnanimous. It's magnanimous. It's a, it's a surplus of love to sinners. It's more love than we need, more grace than we need, more mercy than we need. We see here, it's interesting. The attributes of God are not identical in their functions. God is precise in his execution of justice. If God were overly just or underly just, it would be injustice. He's precise in justice, but profuse in grace. God does not glorify his justice the way that he glorifies his grace. As as a young theologian, I I was simple-minded and I thought, yeah, it's just all of the attributes exactly the same way. No, justice isn't glorious unless it's meticulous. And grace isn't glorious unless it's gargantuan, more than is necessary. Verse 8 He's slow to anger and abounding, there it is, abounding in steadfast love. Our God is quick to wait and sluggish to punish. He drags his feet to rebuke. The tiniest growth in his people excites shocking restraint in the heart of God. Isn't that a comfort? Isn't that a wonderful encouragement that this is who God is? This is not the God I wake up believing. This is not a God that I imagine. I imagine a punitive God, a God who's retributional, a God who's transactional, a God who's conditional. But here God is saying who he is. He's calculated in his discipline. He's never scale tipping or trigger happy, but he's excessive and lavish in his love. He's a very reluctant executioner. He's greedy to pardon. He has gathered up our sins and he has suffered our fate in the person and work of Christ. Watch, it gets even better. Verse nine, he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Now notice, we hear in Proverbs and in Hebrews that God does discipline his children, but he doesn't punish them ever. There's no condemnation for those in Christ. He raises his children, he teaches them, he grows them up and he he brings them up. He's never, ever, ever punitive toward us his sons and daughters. He doesn't attack us. He's never hostile toward us. And I wish, I wish, I wish that we all knew Hebrew for this specific verse because we read it wrongly. The way that we read it is is that he's chiding us right now, but he won't chide us forever. That's not the way the Hebrew reads. It doesn't say that he won't stay angry. That's the way we operate. God's angry with me, but hopefully he won't be angry forever. That's not what this is saying. No, this is saying forever he will not be angry at us. Will never chide us punitively. Not forever he quarrels with us. He fights with us for never. Like that's the way that it's being written. Always he's not displeased with us. Have you ever thought, What if Jesus had been the first Adam instead of Adam? 
And, and what if we, the church, his redeemed, repentant bride, had been Eve? How would history have gone? Would paradise have been lost? Would he have not succeeded where Adam fell? Did he not succeed where Adam fell? Have we not in Christ the very righteousness of God? Christ did not set us back to square one. Christ's work on the cross did not give us a reboot to Adam's original standing. He had a created, losable righteousness. We have an uncreated, the uncreated, unlosable righteousness of God that is righteous forever. That is infinitely higher standing than Adam. Therefore, the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, the reign, the return of Christ were always going to happen because Adam's standing was insufficient before the fall. We need the righteousness of God. Verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Let me tell you, this is one of the verses that I quote to my soul most because I am so prone to think that whatever's happening in my life that's unpleasant is because God is dealing with me according to my sins and repaying me for my iniquities. And the Lord reminds me, Sam, what does your sin deserve? One sin, just being born in Adam, let alone one sin deserves eternity in hell. You find yourself suffering in hell day and night without rest forever and ever, and you can conclude I'm dealing with you according to your sins. Anything less is me hunting you down in my love. I'm never dealing with you according to your sins. That would be to say that I've reserved just a drop from the goblet of wrath that I poured out on my son. I reserved just a drop to sprinkle at you. It's heresy to think that he's ever dealing with us according to our sins. He doesn't punish us. He doesn't pay us back. He doesn't treat us as if we're guilty. He treated his son as if we're guilty so that he could treat us as if we're innocent, righteous, better than innocent, fully righteous is Christ. His reaction is omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient love. God dealt with sin in Christ. He repaid Jesus so that we can sing Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal? No respite, no. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Now, as a child, I was a very strange child. And you might be thinking, we know, we don't know you well, but we can figure that one out pretty easily. I remember laying on my grandparents' lawn. They they live out Belmont and Highview, for those of you that are familiar with Fresno's uh, 
streets out in the country. And I was laying out in the open lawn. I think I might've been playing with dogs or I might've been kicking a football around. I was, I was a youngster. I was like third grade. And I laid out on the lawn. There's nothing beside all. There's just me and sky above me. I just daydream. My head was always in the clouds. Now, this particular time, I was, I was pondering what I had just been learning in school, pondering things like gravity and how our atmosphere is, is gaseous and how the planet Earth uh, rotates at a thousand miles per hour and revolves around the sun at 67,000 miles per hour. I started thinking, wait, if, if the Earth just stopped rotating, the atmosphere would continue to spin at a thousand miles per hour and I would be like ripped off the planet. If, if the earth stopped revolving around the sun, just stopped. There I go, 67,000 miles per hour out into an endless ocean of space. How high are the heavens above the earth? Scientists cannot find the height of the cosmos above the earth. What's the point? God's love is so magnificent, it's scary. Go walk outside the building and realize that the only thing between you and an seemingly infinite void is gas, air. That is a really freaky thought. Thank God for gravity, right? As high as the heavens are above the earth. You see, we, we fear God is not who God says he is more than we fear God is who he says he is. And that needs to stop. Verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. This is a wonderfully scientific illustration. For those of you that are, you know, geology nerds or geography nerds or astronomy nerds, longitude ends at the north and south poles, but latitude, it just, it just keeps going and going. The distance between east and west is unquantifiable. It cannot be calculated. North and south are exactly 12,440 miles and 0.01 miles apart. You can calculate it, but there is no east from west. You're either going east or you're going west. They never meet. He erased your sin. He, he blotted them out. The all-knowing God says, I don't remember them. I don't draw them to mind. This is extraordinary. Verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so Yahweh shows compassion to those who fear him. How tender is a good, decent, godly father. I realize that some, if not many, in this room did not have the extraordinary gift of a godly, humble, strong, loving father. But the pain that you feel from that 
is evidence that your father was a deviation from God's design and not like God at all. Use that. Use the pain that you have from your ungodly father to say the reason this hurts so bad is because he's not at all like my father in heaven. My father in heaven is good. And how well does does even a sinful, fallen, redeemed, yes, repentant, yes, father, how well do they sympathize? I've seen dads at their best. And the best dads, they're going to pity even a proud, conniving, prodigal son. They are going to care for that catty, bratty little daughter. They're going to be anxious all day, shaking legs, studying the horizon for their kid to come back home. And God the Father says, that's a wicked man compared to me. That's a wicked dad compared to me. Don't you love that that moment when Jesus says to, to those fervently listening to him, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does our Father in heaven good give, give good gifts to those who ask him? He kind of snuck in there, total depravity. If you who are evil know how to do good things, I mean, isn't he clever? So if the best dads, who are evil next to this father can be tender sympathizers. How compassionate is our father in heaven? He dwarfs the godliest dad stained by sin. We've got great sin and we grieve the sinfulness of it, don't we? I just talked to a young couple a couple days ago and the, the, the husband, they're away at medical school one of our people. And he just said, Sam, I'm just so tired of my sin. Amen. His heart never regrets us. He regrets with us, our sin. He doesn't hate us in our sin, but he hates with us, our sin. He's like a sweet father who learns that his little girl has been diagnosed with cancer, he does not begin to despise her. In fact, we can make the argument that it's because of her issues that his heart goes out to her in particular, and he hates what is harming her, and he would be rid of it immediately. Why? Verse 14, for he knows our frame intimate knowledge of us. He remembers that we are but dust. Let me ask you, Christian, how how high are your expectations for the dust that settled on your windowsills? Like, are you really hoping that it grows up and makes something of itself? Exactly. What does he remember about us? We are simply dust. And God knows you and I better than we know ourselves. We're dirt, destined to fail. Oh, to grace, how great 
a debtor daily. I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, like a chain, bind my wandering heart to thee, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Praise him. He forgives, he heals, he redeems, he crowns, satisfies, works, reveals. He's mercy and grace, long-fused, lovely, enduring, calm, compassionate, and understanding. Verse 15, as for man. Oh, that's right. We forgot that we exist. This wonderful God has so bombarded our thoughts, the our, our mind's eye, that we've forgotten about man. That's good. That's the intended effect. Man is an afterthought. You and I wake up in the morning and we're at the center of our own universe. But we preach to ourselves, God, 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 a great, lovely God. And then we go, oh yeah, that's right. I forgot that I, have you ever been in a really spellbinding movie? You, you ever sat in like a, a, a movie or, or a concert or something that just absolutely raptured you? It, you're just captured by it. And you literally forget that you exist. You're so caught up in it. That's the idea here. Man is a footnote under God, verses 15 and 16. His days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. April showers bring green blades and blazing blossoms in May. I was just in the United Kingdom and I don't think they get this because it's like eternally green there but I'm thankful that I'm preaching in Bakersfield because we share the same Central Valley, Fresno and Bakersfield, and we know what this means, don't we? Spring is short and then comes June, really May, May, June, July, August, September, burnt to a crisp, right? We are a sneeze, a particle drifting in the infinitude of God. We are a moment. We're gone in a few decades. Most in this room know nothing about their family just a few generations ago. They're gone. Verses 17 to 18, but the steadfast love of Yahweh is from everlasting to everlasting. You know what that just said? God's love for you never began. It never will end, therefore. God's electing and self-obligating love is everlasting. How long has God existed? Forever backwards. It's the best way we could put it. How long has he known you and chosen you to be in his son? Does God learn anything? Does God get any new ideas? You and I did not exist forever. We're not Mormons. We weren't spirit children before we became, took on flesh. But the idea of you, God's knowledge of you, 
God's love for you literally never began and therefore cannot end. You did nothing to meet any conditions in him. And therefore, you can't break any conditions that disqualify his love for you. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There's no separation from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. That's the great Romans 8. On those who fear him. You see, souls that fear God are not like fading flowers. How can he ever stop loving us if his love had no beginning? Verse 17, his righteousness is to children's children. There's no salvation. There's no love without righteousness. My good friend, Tom, he pastors in central London. He goes on the uh, subways, the tube, and he evangelizes. And usually it's indifference. Usually he's met with people just brushing by, even some sometimes hostility. Finally, one day, this was early on in his ministry, a woman came up to him. She had a card that he had passed out and she said, where, how can I have the righteousness that comes from God? He's like, bingo, baby. That's what I'm looking for. That's what I wanted to hear. You see, we recognize that our righteousness, our imperfect attempts at righteousness are fleeting. They're fickle. They're far between. We need a righteousness that comes from God. God's beginningless and endless love is on those who fear him, verse 18, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Is this how sinners are saved? No, sinners only sin. We're saved by the grace of God and his gracious gift of faith that he gives us in Christ. But how do I know if I've received the grace of God? How do I know that his grace towards me has not been in vain? How do I know that I have blessed assurance that Jesus is mine? I fear him. I stay in his love. I obey him. And sometimes, my dear friends, sometimes that feels like it's little more than just finding it unthinkable that I would ever leave him. Jesus walked up to that fig tree that last week of his life. He searched its branches for fruit. He found none. He pronounced it fruitless and he cursed it. If Jesus found one little unripe bead hanging from a twig in that tree, he would not have said kind of fruitful, he would have said fruitful. Sometimes, my friends, the only fruit in our life that we can see is the fruit that we grieve were so fruitless. And Christ says, fruitful. He does not break bruised reeds. He does not snuff out smoldering wicks. 
He cups them, he fans them into flame, he binds them up, he strengthens them until justice reaches victory. There are many, however, who claim Christ that do not love his covenants, that do not keep his commands, that are not grieved when they break his commands. May this be a warning, if that be anyone in here, to fall into the everlasting arms of this loving God. Grace creates fear, a healthy fear. It creates faith. It it creates fealty. Love of, reverence for, and submission to God are the light, the heat, and the energy from the star of God's grace. Trust of God, affection for God, and repentance to God are all the spokes that turn together simultaneously when God gives the immortal new birth in Christ. And so obedience is true belief and it is true relief in Jesus. Why is that? Verse 19, Yahweh has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over the all is the literal words. The author of Psalm 103 killed the giant Goliath saying, I come to you in the name of Yahweh of armies, the God of the forces of Israel. I will strike you down and cut off your head for the battle is Yahweh's. David knew Yahweh. David knew that Yahweh was the unelected, unimpeachable king of the universe. His throne inhabits the invincible uninvadable heavens. Paradise is an impregnable palace, an unconquerable castle. Everything that exists is in God's grip. Yahweh is the king. Jesus is the king. And get this, he doesn't deal with us according to our sins. That is magnificent. Verses 20 to 22. Bless Yahweh, O you his footmen, you war heroes who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless Yahweh, all his troops, his royal officials who do his will. Bless Yahweh, all his works in all places of his kingdom. David is standing before the heavens, before creation, as if he's standing before his own army. He's exciting heaven to sing. Now, doesn't that seem inappropriate? Who are you, O man, to speak to heaven, to speak to the angelic armies? Well, what does Jesus tell us? There is more joy in the presence of the angels, that means it is God's joy over one sinner who repents than over 99 so-called righteous people who think they need no repentance. What gets the angels standing on their feet and roaring in applause? Doesn't Paul ask the Corinthians as if they should know it? Is it common sense? Do you not know that we will rule angels in the world to come? I want you to think about this. We're landing the plane here. Creatures across the cosmos sing with the king's co-regents. Think of this, Michael, Gabriel, and millions of perfect, sinless servants 
join redeemed souls in song. Jesus Christ, God in flesh, has so justified us, so put us right with God the Father by his blood, that his own armies, who have never, ever, ever failed, Michael and Gabriel do not know personally what it is to ever sin. They've never messed up for thousands of years. And David here, a man who committed adultery with a woman and murdered her husband, brought to repentance, forgiven, redeemed, cleansed, can stand looking up to the heavens, knowing that Michael, Gabriel, and the whole host, the whole army, has a watchful eye, and he can say, bless the Lord. And they say, amen. The king's blood is on you. We'll be taking orders from you when he finishes his work in you one day. Why not start now? We'll bless the Lord if you tell us to, redeemed Christian. Bless Yahweh, O my soul. Shall we pray? And can it be that we should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for us who caused his pain, for us who him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, our God, the God-man, shouldst die for us? Forbid it, Lord, that we should boast save in the death of Christ our God, all the vain things that charm us most, we sacrifice them to his blood. We see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Love so amazing, so divine, demands our soul, our life, our all. And our souls bless you in song now, our compassionate Father, in the name of Jesus Christ.